Welcome back, Bible readers. This is the Rooted Podcast, and this is week number 48. And this week, we're going to be working our way through the book of Romans and getting a few chapters into 1 Corinthians. Now, we're entering into a new genre called epistles. And epistles are instructions or teaching given to the church. Much like the prophets in the Old Testament were constantly reminding the people of Israel to be faithful to God's laws and instructing them on staying faithful to Him, the New Testament epistles are constantly reminding God's people to be faithful to the teachings of Christ and His church. And so throughout the epistles in the New Testament, different authors like Paul, Peter, and John focus on different aspects of Christ and His church. For example, when Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy, he focuses in on leadership in the church, whereas when Peter writes 2 Peter, he's concerned about false doctrine that has crept into the church. So therefore, each epistle has a specific theme or purpose that is in direct proportion to the life and ministry of Christ and or his church. So that leads us into the first epistle of the New Testament that we come into contact with, which is the book of Romans, and it's a big one. Um, The book of Romans is Paul's magnum opus, you might say, and throughout church history, many Christians have recognized this epistle as the most important book in all the New Testament. And so Paul writes to this church at Rome to give them the full presentation of salvation, both past, present, and future. It is Paul's most complete work on the doctrine of salvation, and in addition to the theme of salvation, when reading through the book, here are a few additional things to notice. First, Romans reveals the helplessness of the human race. No other Bible book look so deeply into the depravity of sin than this one. Second, Romans was written to a church that Paul had never visited before. Third, there is a special emphasis on the Holy Spirit to believers throughout this book. Fourth, Romans calls us to measure ourselves by divine standards rather than human standards. You know, we sometimes evaluate ourselves or one another by standards that our age sets or we set. However, to know our true condition, we must use God's standards. All right, let's get into the book of Romans. The first 17 verses of chapter 1 forms the introduction to the book of Romans. This introduction section consists of three parts. First, there is a greeting in verses 1 through 7, where Paul introduces himself, the subject matter of the letter, and extends a personal greeting to the original readers of the book. Second, there is a purpose statement in verses 8 through 15. And since Paul had not met the Christians to whom he is writing, he felt it necessary to spend some time sharing his heart with them. The third part of this introduction is the theme in verses 16 and 17, which is likely to be some familiar scriptures to you. Now, Paul not only left obligated and eager to proclaim the gospel, but he also was unashamed to do so. His reason was because the gospel message has the tremendous power to change a person from the inside out. But the gospel is only effective in those who believe the good news that Jesus is the Christ and that Christ has done everything necessary to save us. So that leads us to the first major section in Romans, Romans 1, 18 through chapter 3, verse 20. This section is about the need for God's righteousness. So Paul began his explanation of the gospel by demonstrating that there is a universal need for it. All mankind needs the gospel because all mankind is guilty of sin and are unable to save themselves. No one is exempt. So in verses 18 to 32 of chapter 1, Paul decides to single out the Gentiles first. They are guilty before God. And when mankind rejects the truth of God, he degenerates doctrinally by his beliefs and morally by his living and eventually experiences God's judgment. The Gentiles had a revelation of God in nature, we know that as creation, that told them that God exists, but they chose to ignore it and turn away from it. 
Then Paul singles out the Jews in chapter 2, verse 1 through chapter 3, verse 8. You know, Gentiles are not the only ones who stand guilty before God. It's the Jews as well. And since the Jewish people had more revelation of God than the Gentiles, these are the people that are in view here. The Jewish people were God's chosen nation. They relied on the Mosaic law. They boasted in their knowledge of God, which they received through his covenant. And God had called on the nation of Israel to enlighten the world. But sadly, they failed. The Jewish neighbors excuse me, the Jews' neighbors saw their inconsistency and they despised the Lord because of it. They wrongly assumed that because God has blessed them, he won't condemn them. And even though the Jews had received greater privileges from God, they were not more obedient than the Gentiles. So Paul now moves to the last part of this first section of Romans, chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, citing that everyone is guilty, just in case he forgot to mention someone. Paul affirms both the universal nature of sin and showed its inescapable effects on both individuals and churches. He delivered several Old Testament proof texts to prove the point that sin has affected human intellect, emotions, and will, the whole gamut. It is impossible for a person to earn justification by the works of the law. This section ends with a sense of hopelessness. But that's right when God likes to usher into history and provide a remedy through His Son. So the second section of Romans is chapter 3, verse 21 through the end of chapter 5. And again, this starts the next section, and it begins with a really big and important word, but. (laughs) You see, even though the entire world is unable to be justified, God broke into history and provided a solution. And that solution was in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And this second section of Romans is all about what it means to be justified. Justification is an act whereby God declares a believing sinner to be righteous. And the reason he can do this is based on the death of Christ. This includes the removal of sin's penalty, which is death, as well as the addition of Christ's righteousness to the account of those believers. Then there's the word redemption here in this small section. And this is the deliverance that God has brought about by the payment of a ransom. Christ is the one who sets people free from sin by the payment he made on the cross. That's what we call redemption. Then there's the word propitiation, which means satisfy or appease. The death of Christ has fully appeased God's righteous demands. Now, if you're reading from a different translation, those three doctrinal words, justification, redemption, and propitiation, Um, at the end of chapter 3 here, might not show up, but rest assured they are there. Likely the translators used a phrase to explain those words. Now Paul adds the elements of the law to his discussion in chapter 3, verses 27 through 31. He points out that salvation by faith excludes the works of the law. We are saved by faith, not by works. And we can say amen to that. Because if we had to be saved by works, guess what? No one would be saved. You see, the law, or the works of the law, was never intended to save a person. In fact, in the Old Testament, the Jewish person often missed this distinction. They thought that following all the works of the law would make them righteous. The law was always designed to show mankind that he was a sinner and he needed to make a sacrifice for sins. The law, or the works of the law, does not save a person. It simply shows them how sinful they are and how they are in desperate need of a Savior. Now, in order to better and further explain his point of justification by faith alone, Paul in chapter 4 cites two examples in the persons of Abraham and David. And the main reasoning here is to show that God has always justified a person by means of faith. Paul shows that these two men have always been justified by faith. Abraham was declared righteous long before he did the work of circumcision, which was a work of the law. When God declared Abraham righteous, he had not undergone the rite of circumcision. In fact, it would only happen 14 years later. His circumcision was only a sign or a label of what he already possessed. 
God gave his promise to bless the Gentiles through Abraham long before he gave the Mosaic law. Mosaic law. Consequently, it was wrong for the Jews to think that the blessings of the Gentiles depended on their obedience to the law. To introduce law-keeping as a condition for the fulfillment of this promise would make faith irrelevant and the promise worthless. And then there's David, the second example. David was guilty of murder and adultery, and according to the law, those sins did not have a prescribed sacrifice. They were sins that no sacrifice could atone for, yet he experienced God's mercy and grace and forgiveness. He was declared righteous. Paul has proven that justification is by faith alone apart from any work. Now, in chapter 4, he continues by citing blessings that come, excuse me, in chapter 5, blessings that come from being justified. First, there is peace, which is reconciliation with God. Those who are justified need not to fear God's wrath, since Jesus has made peace between them and the Father by means of his death. Second, there is the blessing of access. We have access freely to God. We no longer have to go through a priest. Third, there is joy in sufferings. We can rejoice because we know that God is using our sufferings to produce endurance in our lives. Fourth, there is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who helps us to endure the sufferings of life. Now, the last part of chapter 5, which wraps up this section number 2 of Romans, contrasts Adam with Christ. Adam brought death to mankind while Christ brought life. Sin entered the world through Adam's one sinful act, and that sin affected all his descendants. All men are guilty before God, but Christ's one act, his death on the cross, makes righteousness available to all. Just as Adam's sin affected all people, so Jesus Christ's obedience affects all believers. Now, the third section of Romans is is about sanctification, chapters 6, 7, and 8. Paul explains that salvation is more than solely being justified before God. It also required work or service on our part. The process, we might call this the daily grind of becoming more and more like Jesus, is not automatic. It involves growth and requires us to have a desire to follow Christ. God leads believers and enables them to follow him through the power of the Holy Spirit, but ultimately each believer must choose. This is what I call our struggle with sin that we fight each day. Some days we win victories and mature in our faith. Other days we feel like we've taken steps backward. The struggle is real and the struggle will continue until our death or the rapture, I guess, whichever comes first. At this point, the believer will experience the finality of salvation, which is called glorification. It's in this state of having a glorified body and a life that God will take away our desires and propensities towards sin, and then the struggle will finally be over. Amen, amen, and amen. But until that time, we struggle each day to live lives that are honorable and set apart to God. Being set apart is this process called sanctification. And it's often been said that accepting Christ as Savior is the easy part. It's the following Him through our sanctification process. That's the hard part. And so chapter 6 tells us that our new position as believers in Christ Uh, that we have been united with Christ by means of baptism. This union makes it possible for us to live victoriously over sin, and we no longer have to be slaves to sin. We can say no to sinful practices since the power from Christ is available to help us. However, even though sin has lost its authority over us, it still tries to regain mastery over us. We can either be slaves to righteousness or slaves to sin. We have no other choice. And according to chapter 7, that constant struggle between what we know is right to do and actually doing it is the same feeling that Paul faced as he struggled with the temptation to sin. And friend, if Paul struggled with it, then we too today face those same battles. Our willpower is not enough. We need outside help in the struggle. 
And that's precisely when the Holy Spirit steps onto the scene in chapter 8. Did you realize that in this chapter alone, in chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 18 times? He is very important in our sanctification process here on earth. And with His help, we are in the process of being conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. Until the day when we are resurrected, the struggle between the flesh and the spirit is going to go on. And while the struggle and sufferings of sin in this life may be hard and difficult, the struggle is really insignificant in comparison to the glory that lies ahead of us. The cross is the great proof of God's love for us and is the basis of our victory in the present and the final victory in the future. And nothing in all of creation can drive a wedge between the loving God and his redeemed people. The next section of Romans encompasses chapters 9 through 11, probably some of the most difficult sections of Romans. And these chapters are really answering a rhetorical question that arises from the previous chapter. If God loves his people so much and nothing can drive a wedge between them and himself, why has Israel been laid aside? Do they still have a place in the plans of God? What about the covenants that God made with Israel? The point that Paul will make is that the Mosaic Covenant, or the law here, has been done away with because of Jesus' sacrifice, but the Abrahamic Covenant remains intact. Remember the Mosaic Covenant, or the Mosaic Law, was a conditional covenant that found its ultimate completion in the person of Christ. But the Abrahamic Covenant is unconditional, meaning that God still plans to bless all the nations of the world through His chosen people, Israel, something that will happen for sure in the future. Now, according to chapter 9, Israel was sovereignly chosen by God in the past to be his chosen nation, to have a special relationship with him. This choice, however, was not based on anything about the nation of Israel. God simply chose them on the basis of his mercy. And even though Israel had a special position with God, they still had to be saved by faith and not by works. The reality, however, was that presently Israel had rejected Christ. That's in chapter 10. They insisted on being saved in their own way rather than God's way which accounts for their present lost condition. That's what Paul's talking about here at this time in the book of Romans. Presently, in the church age today, Israel has the same standing as Gentiles. And like the Gentiles, they must hear and believe the gospel in order to be saved. Any Jew who calls on the Lord for salvation will be saved. Now, later in chapter 11, Paul demonstrates that even though Israel has been disobedient, stubborn, and undeserving, God still is faithful to his promises he made in the Abrahamic covenant. Israel's present spiritual blindness is limited in its extent and its duration. And someday God will fulfill his promises to Israel, and Israel as a nation will finally be redeemed. And for the sole reason that the nation of Israel is still in existence today, even though it has endured countless attempts of annihilation, shows clearly that God is faithful to his promises, and that he has a plan for his people in the future. Now, the next and last major section of the book of Romans is chapter 12, verse 1 through chapter 15, verse 13. Chapters 1 through 11 have been highly theological and or doctrinal, but in chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, there is a shift here. It's a high point or a climax to the epistle. In light of all that God has done for us, we should present ourselves as a living sacrifice. We should present ourselves to be used totally and fully by God in whatever way He chooses. Paul reminds us to stop letting our minds be controlled by the world, but allow the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to transform us. What does that transformation look like? Well, it's using our spiritual gifts to minister effectively to other believers. It's being careful to show the love of Christ to both believers and non-believers. It's our good and healthy relationships with non-believers. Now, speaking of relationships with non-believers, in chapter 13, Paul deals with living in the world as a Christian. 
And part of living in the world is our responsibilities towards civil leaders. And Paul was certainly aware of the abuses of government, yet he also recognizes that government has been established by God and those in authority have been placed there by God. So Paul reminds us of our duty to submit and pray for our leaders in positions of government. Paul reminds us that we need to show love for all people while we actively wait for the Lord to return. Then in chapter 14 through chapter 15, verse 13, Paul devotes quite a bit of space to doubtful things, that is, issues in which Scripture are not crystal clear on. Believers in every age will have to deal with issues that we like to call gray areas. Paul gave these believers some basic principles or guidelines to help them determine what was best for them. And those principles are still relative, are still relevant, excuse me, in our culture today. First, Paul tells us that we must think matters through biblically based conclusions. So we've got to think matters through to biblically based conclusions. We must search the scriptures and come to know what is right for ourselves. Second, we're to be considerate of others who are weaker in the faith. If the stronger brother determines it is right for them to carry out certain actions, this does not mean that they should do it every time. Just because you're permitted to do something doesn't give you the liberty to do it. Love for others must dictate our actions. Third, Paul reminds us of the judgment seat of Christ. We are ultimately accountable to Christ for all the choices that we make. Now, the last section of Romans is the conclusion, chapter 15, verse 14, through the end of the book. As Paul brings this letter to a close, he once again shares his reason for writing and tells this Roman church that he hopes to minister eventually in Spain, and he hopes he will uh, stop by to see them on his way there. Chapter 16 concludes the book with some personal matters of Paul. In this chapter alone, chapter 16, Paul named 35 persons, nine of whom were with him, and the rest were in Rome. He identified 17 men and seven women, plus at least two households and three house churches, along with some other unnamed brethren and two other women. The ministry of women in the Roman church is quite evident in this chapter. Paul referred to nine prominent women. Okay, whew, we're done with Romans, but we're not done with the podcast yet. We've got to go on to 1 Corinthians, the next epistle. If we could carry one similar word over from Romans into 1 Corinthians, it would be sanctification. Now that the Corinthians were saved by faith in Christ, Paul wanted their lives to accurately reflect their position as children of God. Being sanctified, as we learned in Romans, means to be set apart. It's a process of maturing in the faith. While the Corinthians had some issues with their maturity level, which led to many serious issues that Paul had to address. Now, some additional details to keep in mind when reading through the book of 1 Corinthians. First, the church of Corinth was started on Paul's second missionary journey, Acts chapter 18, and it received more attention on that trip than any other church. He spent a year and a half there. Second, the city and culture of Corinth greatly affected the church morally. We would call Corinth the Las Vegas of the ancient world. Third, even though we have two New Testament epistles written to this church, Paul had additional correspondence with this church and made additional visits that are not mentioned elsewhere. Fourth, this church is an excellent illustration of Paul's concern and care for those churches that he started. Paul didn't simply start churches and leave them to survive on their own. Fifth, this book is extremely helpful as it relates to the doctrine of the local church, especially as it relates to the worship service, the corporate gathering of God's people. So as we get into 1 Corinthians, the first nine verses of the book form the introduction, where Paul writes his customary greeting and expresses gratitude for the good things that God had done at Corinth. At least ten times throughout this introduction, Paul refers to Christ. 
emphasizing the truth that Jesus is the Lord of the church. Now from chapter 1, verse 10, through the end of chapter 4, the focus is on Paul's discussion on the problem of division that was permeating the church. He's greatly concerned about the lack of unity, and if he doesn't deal with unity first, then other problems will surface later on. So in chapter 1, verses 11 through 17, the Corinthians had overdone the natural tendency to appreciate some of God's servants or God's leaders more than others because of their own personal qualities or because of blessings that they had imparted. Following a specific leader will often lead to a person trusting that leader's wisdom. They rather needed to trust in God's wisdom. They lacked God's wisdom, and this was the fundamental reason that they were divided. And Paul continues his thought in the next section, chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 2, verse 5. He states that God's wisdom is the wisdom of the cross, or the cross, something that looks like foolishness to the world. The gospel message is superior over anything that human wisdom can devise. We should therefore value the content of the message more highly than the wisdom evident in the styles of those who delivered it. You know, Paul's preaching was not marked with excellence of rhetorical display or philosophical stump speeches. He didn't design his content or delivery to impress. He simply announced the message, and the power of the Holy Spirit did the work of conviction. By the way, the reference to the Holy Spirit here, it enabled Paul to elaborate more on this topic in chapter 2, verses 6 through 12. The Corinthians needed to view ministry differently, ministry that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit enables believers to understand the mind of God. He plays an indispensable role in both our understanding of God's revelation and helping us communicate it to others. Unbelievers, unfortunately, have no such helper. Now, chapter 3 tells us that the Corinthians had not been viewing things from a spiritual perspective. And as a result, they are what we might term worldly or carnal Christians. They were believers in Christ, but their growth was stunted. An immature Christian is one who does not see things from God's perspective. And in the case of the Corinthians, a human perspective or a human leader was more important to them. But Paul reminds them that even though he and Apollos had a hand in the beginnings of the Corinthian church, God is ultimately the one who brings spiritual life and growth. Christian ministers are similar to builders of God's temple. You know, Paul laid the foundation and others added to the foundation of that church. But the material used for the building of the church is also important, just like they were with building the temple. Human wisdom builds a church with materials that will, if human, or excuse me, human wisdom builds a church with materials that will burn up in the fire. But godly wisdom does not. Godly wisdom builds a church with materials that will not burn up in the fire. If any servant of the Lord tears down the church instead of building it, God will tear him down. And at the judgment seat of Christ, God will expose the work of each believer, testing its quality and rewarding each one accordingly. Now, the last chapter that we have to talk about today is chapter 4. And Paul wanted to say more about what it means to be a servant of God in chapter 4. And in this chapter, he clarified the essential features of an acceptable servant of God. He did this so his readers would appreciate them all more and so that they would follow Paul's example as a servant themselves. D.A. Carson, an author that I really like, a solid fellow here, summarizes this chapter in three distinct ways. He says this, Christian leadership means being entrusted with the mysteries of God. Christian leadership means living life in light of the cross. And Christian leadership means encouraging and, if necessary, enforcing the way of the cross among the people of God. Ultimately, the Corinthian problem was that they had not allowed the Holy Spirit to transform their attitudes. This is why Paul tells us later in Ephesians, don't be filled with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. You know, wine fights to control the body. Rather, choose to be filled with the Spirit and allow the Spirit to control your body.
All right, well, that's all for this week. We'll start at chapter 5 next week of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I believe next week we'll cover all of 1 Corinthians, the rest of it, and all of 2 Corinthians. Email any questions you have to BibleReading at LNBC.org, and I will talk with you all next time.